Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now in studio is Jeffrey Yu. He's the head of the UK Investment Office at UBS here in London. And it's uh, great to meet you in person, Jeffrey. Nice to see you. Likewise. Let's, let's start with the, with the macro here. We've been trying to process what's been happening uh, in emerging markets with currencies in particular over the course of the week. What lessons are you drawing here? What have you seen? What are you interpreting here uh, when you look at emerging market currencies? So two things, and um, you know, we'll go with the peso and the lira, sure. and, and the two of them are moving on on esoteric matters. So uh, it's it's a good sign that, um, you know, currencies, well, EM currencies can actually move quite aggressively, can weaken quite aggressively, you know, without um, infecting the rest. You know, we were worried about currency crisis and EM currency crisis in the past. Um, but uh, on the other hand, it does show that, you know, where the capital is flowing, where the money is flowing, it's still heading into the US right now. So dollar still on the ascendancy. Uh, the PBOC in China, they're trying to contain that. We've seen some massive moves in the CNH. So even though there's no cross-selling of EM um, right now, I think a lot of EM currency is actually you know, quite attractive at these levels. Um, we are still you know, not seeing a turn anytime soon. Markets are waiting for the proposals, you know, the policies from the incoming administration, and will that prompt another dollar rally? So you know, that's another risk. A lot for us to dig into mm-hmm. here. Help us with the, the central bank intervention that we've seen. We saw the Turkish Central Bank uh, trying to, to, to shore up liquidity here. What, 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 uh, what's your takeaway from that? Um, so if you look at what Turkey's trying to do um, you know, on the liquidity side of things, you know, not too dissimilar to what's um, going on in the CNH market. So they know the directionality is a bit hard um, to you know, move against right now, uh, but you know, there are ways um, to slow down the move, right, so to speak. So to make funding costs, to get the forward squeeze going, to make holding a short position in these currencies relatively expensive for traders, Right. But that can only work on a tactical basis from a central bank's point of view. This buys time and the impetus is on the authorities to use that time to restructure reform and in Turkey's case, you know, try to bring down the FX exposures in the corporate sector. We saw market enthusiasm, so much market enthusiasm after the U.S. presidential election. It seems like uh, traders may be taking a pause or, or, or reevaluating or waiting to see what actually uh, comes about here. Is that your sense of what we're seeing right now when it comes to, to U.S. economic policy? Um, I, I think that's broadly true, um, more so in the equity market. Mm. Um, because, you know, that has been, uh, and, you know, with the U- uh, U.S. equity markets on a relative basis are much more domestic focused, um, be it large caps or mid caps, um, so in relative um, to the rest in, in Europe and the U.K., and particularly in the FTSE is a commodity index for, uh, index for all intents and purposes. So there is, you know, where people do want to, you know, probably, you know, take a step back and reassess. But for this year, we still think the growth is in the U.S. and we want to be overweight the U.S. Look at uh, bank earnings now, folks. Bank of America with a minimal move mm-hmm. off markets, barely budging uh, here as they increase their common share at repurchase other too big to fail banks to follow. We've got a good amount of time with Jeffrey Yu of UBS and we'll get to asset allocation and what he's doing with UBS wealth management. But I got one more inside baseball question, which you're almost up to speed on. Can I trust the statement of foreign exchange reserves 
at any given nation? Do if if the if the number's three trillion, mm-hmm. how much of that is actually in the piggy bank? Um, so in in China's case, I mean, that's. Uh, very interesting. You know, most would argue that if you count of all of China's FX assets, you know, not just with SAFE, you've got the NSSF, you've got CIC, uh, you've got SICL, you know, all of these entities, it's going to be much larger than $3 trillion. What matters is how much liquid that they can actually What is deploy. it on a percentage basis, so, a wise one? Prob- so probably, you know, that is going to fall um, not significantly below the $3 trillion mark, okay. but a bit below that, right? So uh, hard to put a number on it, guesstimates. You know, probably, you know, seven, at least 70 to 80% of that should be liquid, and then you move from there. So um, you move from there, yeah. and within the trilemma of international economics, what's the first derivative going to be this year? Is this going to be a Mr. G going to Davos saying, whoa, the piggy bank's going to empty quick? Mm-hmm. That is not going to happen from China's (laughs) point of view. It is going to be essential for them to maintain stability. You know, we know the political risks in China, the domestic political calendar. Everyone talks about Europe this year. China has a a, a political transition every five years, and it's going to happen this year. It's on very few clients' radars at this point. So maybe for good reason, because when that happens, there tends to be a stable process. I don't mean to interrupt, David. I know you want to jump in here, but this is a critical question. Who is Mr. Xi speaking to in Happy Valley in Switzerland? Is he talking... To David Rubenstein, Ken Rogoff, Mr. Greco of Zurich, Tom and Keen. Mr. Crying, no, not to me, <laughs> to Deutsche Bank, my panel at Davos, or is he talking to somebody in Chengdu? He is trying to talk to the Chinese people. One show China is a player, China is trying to fill a vacuum, but at the same time, things are under his control. There will be stability. Yes, we've had a few wobbles on the exchange rate. Yes, growth is coming down, but it's not something that is out of his control. The fact that he can be there, you know, yeah. right ahead of the MPC <clears throat> in March, is a sign of control. Yeah, because I remember. Uh, uh, David, when Mr. Sarkozy showed up one year early in his reign, and literally it wasn't like WEF was even there. He essentially gave a speech for Paris. Uh-huh. Jeffrey, let me ask you, it begs a broader question here, just about the, the degree to which the Chinese government is getting better at communicating. Do you find that to be the case on financial matters, on monetary matters? Um, I find the PBOC is becoming much better at uh-huh. communicating, and, and, and the PBOC is um, one of the most technocratic, if not the most technocratic institutions um, in China. So, you know, they acknowledge, you know, what they did in August 2015 was poorly communicated. Uh, so, you know, they plan on doing that better. But again, communicating to markets versus communicating to the domestic audience and what has priority, it will always be the latter. What changed after uh, the IMF put the, the put them in the special drawings basket? Did anything change or was that largely uh, You know, not much. You know, yeah. that's not being domestic, uh, that, that's not being debated um, at all. I think what the, the Chinese intended um, was um, for that to be a sign of, well, a, a, a sign of recognition and um, get demand up and people be more willing to borrow and issue in CNH. Um, but again, then they look at CMY, they look at the capital outflows and uh, probably say, uh, no, thank you, not right now. How's the PBOC, how's the Chinese government preparing for uh, the eventuality of dramatic changes to U.S. trade policy? Um, that really is beyond their remit at this point. From their, their own point of view, they just uh, they know there will be a lot of financial instability. But again, on, on, on the currency side, um, any any instability, if it's a dollar-driven move, if it's dollar going up against broader emerging markets and the like, then I think they'll be happy to allow that to happen. And then it's going to be a basket. They'll refer to the basket. Look, it's a dollar move. Remember, be yeah. stable against everything else. Let's migrate to yeah. what we're going to talk about yeah. in our next block. Do you use your expertise in foreign exchange mm-hmm. to hedge mm-hmm. equity shares mm-hmm. abroad? Is is it worth hedging foreign exchange, or do you just go mm. with the risk? Well, if you had so from a UK investor's point of view, if you had hedged your foreign exchange 
risk last year, you would have missed out on quite a bit. So I think last year was a very big educational exercise for our UK clients. They realized that one, having overseas exposure could pay dividends. And uh, that, 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 is, um, uh, that could be said for the FTSE 100 as well, because 70% overseas earnings, but also having unhedged FX exposure to overseas right. assets, <clears throat> that really paid off. It's a, it's a chilly day in London. David, all the talk here of, of winter storm coming. Yeah, it's not peeked out the window storm. to see some snow for maybe fifteen minutes. Fifteen minutes didn't settle. I was but, expecting uh, created for some excitement. Five inches of <laughs> Jeffrey, you were this with the London uh, weather report with UBS. <laughs> Do they ever get like five inches of snow in London? Well, put it this way: I went to college in Minnesota. Uh, okay, mm-hmm. so when I try to explain them what real snow is, <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's a bit of a different reaction. Yeah. Um, let's talk about. More about what to do with money. You are truly an international economic expert, and you fold that into what to do with money. To our listener in the United States who's got a retirement plan or they run a pension plan, they run institutional money, are you, is there a confidence now? Are you in cash? Is literally an asset alternative? Um, not yet, really. It's um, it, it has performed in the past, but now this year, for example, one of our biggest themes is falling real rates. And we still think central banks, um, be it the Fed, be it the ECB, if they are going to be willing to actually let their currencies, uh, sorry, let let their economies actually run a bit ahead of potential growth. So let them overheat somewhat to generate that escape velocity in inflation, which has eluded us for the last decade, then um, cash is not going to be um, a good Mm -hmm. place to be, right? And that's the way the central banks want it. As you look around the world, are there economies, are there markets that are uh, more immune, shall we say, from the, the, the political forces that are driving so much of the, the world economy right now? Well, uh, so again, Switzerland would be an obvious yes. one, right? So, you know, we discussed in the previous show, you know, it's, um, it's a markedly, you know, flexible um, economy, but its political system is remarkable, you know, as well, and you know, how it manages um, to be, you know, federal at the same time, you know, so much has devolved at a local level. Um, so, you know, that's why it's treated as a safe haven, financial safe haven and a political safe haven. So, but if you go around the world right now looking for political safe havens, you know, a bit difficult. You know, in Asia, people you know, think about Singapore all the time, but that's a very cyclical economy, so not exactly an economic safe haven if we get economic volatility. So it's a bit tricky right now. Yeah. How important is the, the next Fed meeting, the February Fed meeting, going to be? How indicative Good is that question. going to be of, of where There's so much going? else going on. You, you're, David, you're absolutely right. We forget. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, a <laughs> next Fed meeting. Yes, yeah. Um, I would say the most important thing is, and we got from the minutes this time around, I think you know, half of the participants you know, have started to incorporate fiscal projections you know, into their forecasts. That ratio has got to rise, and the information value of their forecast in incorporating the fiscal component will have to rise as well. And that should give us more clarity on where the Fed can be. But still, we think no three hikes this year. That is a bit of a stretch from our perspective, and that really underpins our asset allocation for this year. How do you think about U.S. fiscal policy, the potential for a big stimulus in a global context? What effect could that have globally? Uh, So, you know, that really is the main question for emerging markets right now. So in the past, if you had major U.S. reflation, the U.S. cycle really picked up, that that would boost global trade and that would help emerging markets, especially in Asia. You should see um, you know, Asian surpluses rise again, and we would had all those reserve managers you know, being active as well. Is it going to happen this time around? Because if it's internally focused, and make no mistake, the president-elect wants it to be internally focused, and so if the tailwinds are not going to be as strong for the world right now, then the world should worry. So I think you know, that's what you know, President Xi would uh, want to say in Davos. So there needs to be a new way, a new method of growth, not just relying on the U.S. to you know, lift all boats. There will be some residual benefit, but Really, it's about generating your own internal demand right now. Jeffrey, uh, in the time that we've got left with you, 
What would you expect from the president-elect president on January 20, uh, 20th? What, what, what will he do to adjust and adapt markets this year? So I think three main things there. Firstly, again, as we discussed on the fiscal side, uh, I am... Uh, you believe there'll be fiscal action that I will do move the needle? I do believe it, but mostly focusing on the taxation side. Now, that is baked into share prices, and uh, that is generally accepted as positive. But secondly, it's more about policy execution. How do you design it? 2004 Homeland Investment Act, you know, Kristen Forbes, who's on our MPC right now with the Bank of England, I think her, her story, her, her, her paper two years later said 96 cents out of every dollar went into share dividends on buybacks. Mm -hmm. That lifts equity prices. It is not sustainable. It doesn't generate any capex. So we want to see good tax policy. And you'll see that on repatriation, 96 cents will go. Repatriation. Go to the Davos crew. It needs to go into investment this yeah. time. It needs to lift. So those two put together from the U.S. side, I think if well, it's properly designed, then that could do the whole world a lot of good as well. It's Friday, and that's the statistic of the last four days to see Kristen Forbes that research at 96 cents went back to shareholders, which some people would suggest is a good use. Je our good use is to have you with us. Jeffrey, as always, thank you. Thank you. Uh, with UBS uh, this morning. Now we do a section on cutting expenses. <laughs> yes. Uh, Friday the 13th, the first day of the latest bank earnings. Cutting Ken expenses. Leon is with us now. He's Global Director of Industry and Equity Research at CFRA. Bank of America profit rising 43%. We're waiting on earnings reports from Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan. Uh, Ken, great to have you with us here on the Spectrum Enterprise phone line. Spectrum Enterprise nationwide fiber-based network and IT infrastructure solutions. And Ken, let's start with Bank of America and what the earnings say about uh, Brian Moynihan's plan here to cut costs, as Tom was, was alluding to. This has been a plan uh, that's been implemented in the works. Uh, what have we learned today about how uh, efficacious it's been so far? So the uh, efforts to really right-size the business, uh, the investment in, across consumer, global bank, and capital markets, uh, that's going well. What drives costs and, and widens margins, margins not only uh, controlling compensation costs, headcount, but the investment in the business. So I think that's good on the margin side. We're also seeing, um, you know, this earnings report uh, is the trajectory of you know, moving from headwinds to tailwinds for a lot of their business drivers. Uh, FIC was the story last quarter, if I remember correctly, fixed income trading. Uh, mm -hmm. Here, Bank of America disappointed a little bit. What do you read into that? It's still a very strong quarter. Yeah. I mean, the, the numbers are up uh, tremendously. You know, when, when you look, it's, it's not just fixed income, but it's what we call thick, fixed income trading, commodities, currencies. Uh, the subset of that is important. So when you compare this even to what J.P. Morgan has, um, it will be, you know, it's, it's driven by the higher trading in some areas such as municipal. Uh, they also did well, I'm sure, in some of the traditional fixed income. Um, you know, but you know, what's happened is you, you just can't hit it out of the park because these, these <clears throat> banks are controlling their capital for trading. And, and that's part and parcel from the Dodd-Frank and, and the Volcarol. Help me here with the, with the crushing reality that the three banks reporting today represent a 718,000 employees. How many bodies will be employed off 700,000 five years from now? So these are global banks. Um, their ability uh, to use technology, uh, particularly in the mass market businesses such as yep. consumer, means uh, that there's always an appetite uh, for 
certainly managing costs. Um, I, I think the necessity of um, cutting headcount as much as aligning performance and compensation with the business is, is probably the right area. So probably in some areas like investment banking or M&A, mm-hmm. uh, IPO, it was down year over year. So those bonuses will be down, but they still need, you know, you're they, still they in They still need warm economy. bodies. Yeah. You need more bodies, um, and and probably you, you might thin out your more senior uh, managing directors. But you know, in terms yeah. of uh, having a franchise and being in the market, certainly J.P. Morgan. Um, you know, some of the other businesses, yeah. you know, are a little bit different. Okay, I'll go with that. In that, it's not about unit count; it's about total compensation for the guys in the fancy suits. Help me with consumer banking. I've been waiting for years to be a, see a rationalization of, of consumer banking. To seven hundred thousand, roughly employees at those three banks. Do you knock one hundred and forty thousand off because of the revolution we're going to see in consumer banking? Well, revolution of consumer banking is like uh, what's happening in automobiles, artificial intelligence, or let's say you want to change your uh, flight and you call the airline and you got to go through you know five to ten different steps talking to a machine. Unfortunately, I think that's it's not about personal relationship banking, you know, unless you have a sizable uh, bank account or net worth. I mean, that's just the way it is in the consumer market. I think the good news, though, is uh, the millennial generation is much more comfortable uh, in terms of online banking. But you hit another point, which essentially is, do you really need all that bricks and mortar? So it's kind of like Best Buy versus Amazon. If we're looking at, you know, large branch networks versus millennials comfortable of doing online banking and investing and paying their bills, um, that gives you pause to what you're saying about mm-hmm. probably a six-figure drop in terms of headcount over those years. Just a quick question here as we, we get uh, J.P. Morgan earnings. I'll bring this to you just in, in just a second here. There's this conversation about regulation happening in Washington, D.C. Now, how do you begin to factor in sort of what that could mean for these banks going forward, how changes to the regulatory system uh, could affect uh, their earnings? Yeah, I think the, the picture is from doom and gloom to more glimmer of hope or, or optimism. Um, you know, how Washington plays out um, is, for investors is really on the timeline. If the timeline or lag is too long, it would disappoint. Look for the following. Uh, the key areas where the Trump administration uh, can affect quickly would be at the uh, authority to you know, with their picks in the agencies. So the Department of Labor under Obama has this fiduciary rule, which really has an impact on the wealth management business, essentially for retirement products. So there might be some easing there. Uh, mm-hmm. Representative Wilson in Congress uh, had a bill to uh, state that agency regulation, the SEC, the CFTC, overall there should be some easing. I think, that, you know, the big right. debate... And then the final point is, well, everyone talks about Dodd-Frank, but Dodd-Frank was legislation. That takes time. And I think what's in front of Dodd-Frank, you know, Congress can do something, but Federal Reserve has been most active. You know, so Federal Reserve versus Trump becomes an interesting situation. It does, and that's for another day. The day right now is J.P. Morgan. Now, Ken Leon with us with CFRA, and he's with us in real time. We greatly appreciate that uh, this morning. J.P. Morgan on a 171 versus a consensus 140. 
44, uh, the usual 4,700 headlines. Across the Bloomberg equity sales trading, a little light off estimate. I think I noticed FIC doing better uh, than good. I don't see the drama of an increased share buyback as we saw with Bank of uh, America, but we're also getting James Diamond with headlines out. Jamie Diamond calling the fourth quarter, quote, strong end to another record year, and he's got a positive view forward on earnings momentum. David Gurr, what do you see? Yeah, the, looking at FIC here, uh, FIC sales and trading revenue were $3.37 billion. The estimate was $3.26 billion. Equity sales and trading revenue of $1.15 billion. The estimate $1.29 billion. Yeah. Uh, Michael Moore here on the Top Live blog. I encourage everyone to check that out who has a Bloomberg terminal. T-Live, T-L-I-V, uh, go on the Bloomberg. He has a pretty a pretty strong 14% ROTCE for the quarter, well above Bank of America's figure. Yeah, and, and that's those ratios are critical, folks. We're not going to do a CFA dissertation here, but Ken Leon... Whether it's tier one capital or it's tangible book value or return on capital, J.P. Morgan leads the way really ratio to ratio, don't they? Ken Lee, are you with sheet, us? There you go. Sorry, yeah. As Jamie Diamond has said, so uh, balance sheet, financial condition, liquidity, they're, they're all fine. Cash flow is good. Um, you know, get it, you know, the return on equities were much higher than historically. Um, so, uh, you know, well, J.P. Morgan continues to lead. Let's rip up the script here with the stock elevated fractionally. Ken Lyon, if Mr. Diamond was sitting here, and, 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 and Jamie, if you're listening this morning, please contact Rachel Wurzbank. <laughs> but, but Ken, if, if J.P. Morgan management seriously was listening to this discussion, the first question would be, are we overcapitalized? Do they have too much of a cash bu- bu- a buffer off of the scars of the financial crisis? So I would take the flip side is they have a lot of capital because uh, in many instances regulation requires it, yeah. even for their trading products um, and um, as it relates to the risk measures. So um, capital over the last five years has had to increase, and, and that's not going away. David, uh, bank earnings really front and center. Wells Fargo to come, and we just uh, noticed J.P. Morgan crossing. Yeah, J.P. Morgan here earnings per share of 1.71%. Ken Leon, 1.71. Ken Leon, kind enough to stay with us here, Global Director of Industry and Equity Research at CFRA. Joining us uh, on the Spectrum Enterprise phone line, Spectrum Enterprise Nationwide Fiber-Based Network and IT Infrastructure Solutions. Uh, There's a line here uh, in the earnings report. Uh, Ken, we were talking about regulation. Jamie Dimon, the CEO of the company, saying in that press release, uh, the economy may be building momentum. He says, looking ahead, there's opportunity for good, rational, and thoughtful policy decisions to be implemented, which would spur growth, create jobs for Americans across the income spectrum, and help communities, and we are well-positioned to play our part. Let's uh, let's dig into that last line of that quotation. They're well-positioned to, to play our part. Give us your sense of how well-positioned J.P. Morgan is. Well, I, I mean, it has not only endured, but it has led the banking industry since the financial crisis, and it's extremely well managed. Um, you know, the the knock on JP JP Morgan has always been, you know, it is too big to manage, and it would be better um, if it was broken up. So I don't think that's the environment we're in. You know, in 2017 with the Trump administration, um, I think J.P. Morgan uh, wants to do the right things, uh, not only for its shareholders, but also for America. And that means finding ways to generate jobs in some areas. And it may mean, you know, back office centers aren't going to be all over the world. Maybe they're going to open up centers in Salt Lake City and things like that. They have it, but they probably want to message and do more so that they're able to get to the much bigger issues for them, which is Dodd-Frank. 
Just looking here, Wells Fargo now crossing fourth quarter earning per share of 1.03. <clears throat> uh, Tom, and uh, net income of $5.3 billion. Yeah. It is always interesting, and Ken and I will talk about this, Ken Leon, in a moment, but to the credit of Wells Fargo, they come out in the top line with an original yabut, and the yabut is called net hedge ineffectiveness. This generally means within the CFA canon that somebody screwed up, buried down, and again, Ken, to the great credit of Wells Fargo, their chief financial officer, John Shrewsbury, gets right to the point. Non-interest income declined from a prior quarter due to net hedge accounting ineffectiveness associated with our hedging of long-term debt as part of their asset liability management program. Ken, let me translate. Donald Trump really hit Wells Fargo hard. Would that be a good way to look at this? So... You know, Wells Fargo has a lot to do to kind of regain the stature that they had before the problems with consumer Mr. banking. Stumpf, yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously, um, you know, there's puts and takes here. You know, it, it, it's something you just just can't analyze on its face. you got to go deep into the supplementals. But, you know, there's issues here. Wells Fargo has definitely lost its mojo, you know, and it's had some reputation damage that's going to take time. Yeah. Um, I, and, and again, Ken, I don't mean to interrupt, but and it's unfair to you because you're doing this in real time. I want to credit Wells Fargo for clarity uh, two-thirds of the way down the release background on hedge ineffectiveness. And they go into – we're not going to have people drive off the road, but they go into floating versus fixed hedges. So, Ken, the distinction to me is this about the abrupt bond move that we saw on November 8th from the election, or is this about all the new – the noise, rather, that Wells Fargo had in their consumer lending? I can't answer that question. Fair. You know, when, you, when you're Fair. talking about the mix of floating and fixed, you know, those are based on trading strategies and rate changes. Um, I can't tie that to the bigger issue you're mentioning. That's a fair answer. Let's let's look at the the legal issues that the, this bank has faced. This has been a quarter where they haven't had any new ones to add to it. The first quarter in a long while. Tim Tim Sloan now heading up the company. He says in the statement, "We continue to make progress in the fourth quarter, rebuilding the trust of our customers, team members, and other key stakeholders." What what is his turnaround effort looked like? What what does it look like at Wells Fargo, and how much promise does it show to you? Yeah, it looks better. It absolutely looks better. And um, yeah. you know, we've we've seen uh, less headline news in terms of uh, large legal lawsuit settlements, and um, charge-offs are coming down. Mm-hmm. You know, loan quality is improving. You know, all these things means there's going to be more attention to the operating lines. You know, versus yeah. uh, you know what's in the reserves. And another thing interesting is uh, a lot of concern in 2016 of write-offs from the energy industry, and that mm. seems to be whimpering out. That's a good point. It's it's tapering out here, buried in the boilerplate. And again, I want to give them massive credit for clarity, folks. We we are we are uh, uh, we've seen it all, is how I would put it on Bloomberg surveillance in terms of corporations hiding uh, the news. Here's the key sentence, David Gura. The net hedge accounting losses in the fourth quarter 2016 were driven by a sharp increase in certain interest rates and foreign currency fluctuations, which tilts it towards the market dynamics that we've seen. And again, Ken Leon, folks, has a huge responsibility not to speculate mm-hmm. on this as a security analyst on Wall Street. David? Ken Leon, let me pull back globally a little bit. We had Mike Mayo on the show yesterday, and I asked him what lessons U.S. banks could take from what we've seen in the European banking sector. And he said this should be a time when those banks, U.S. banks, 
uh, are putting more capital aside, put the capital aside while, while they can. Do you agree with him? Is that, is that something that these banks should be more focused on, building up that cushion? Well, they have. I, I think the, the major U.S. banks, particularly the J.P. Morgans, are so that they've they've done that, and and they're you know well well into the fourth quarter of the game in terms of the reaction from the crisis and the regulation. European banks are somewhat entering the third quarter of the game. So uh, you have to think about the timeline first. They also have businesses and strat- you know businesses that have done worse. Um, and there's been strategies to shift away from capital markets and risk-taking to conservative wealth management and traditional banking. That's the European banks. I would see uh, walls, high walls trying to be built by the European Commission because there's great opportunities for J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley to gain market yeah. share in Europe. And, Ken, do your observation on the energy business continued improvement in, quote, residential real estate and stabilization in oil and gas industry conditions drove a $100 million reserve release uh, back to the company? That's where they take the piggy bank folks and move $100 million out because things are better than they expected. Ken, how does a guy like you figure out how determinative the rate hike timeline is going to be for these big banks, looking at the results we see today, looking at what these banks have been saying, how determinative that's going to be? It, you know, it's it's going to be positive, you know, so it's kind of been a funk probably for the last eight quarters of just the, the yield curve not helping and net interest income uh, going down. Uh, we're beginning to see that it's flat to slightly up. And then if you look out over the next 18 months, you know, whether it's credit cards, mortgages, uh, investment accounts, um, you know, rising rates helps the banks. Ken, help me here with a three- and five-year horizon. Mm-hmm. We're bearing here in the quarterly, but give us one last observation. Where do you put dividend growth for these banks? Is it double-digit? Can I be that enthusiastic, or are they going to grind out dividend growth 200 basis points above nominal GDP? You know, the, the banks are generally known to be defensive, total return, and, and dividends are important. Um, I out, you know, we'll see any conviction of double digit. Um, you know, it gets back to use of capital and, and then also yeah. for future risk. Last point here is, Please. you know, you know, it's really, there isn't any big controversial issues right now for the banks, but watch out for student loans as we get through 17 into mm-hmm. 18. Uh, that's been mostly government, so maybe that's an opportunity yeah. For, yeah. for the banks to securitize it. But, you know, the, right now there really isn't a big negative issue as we've seen for several years. Okay. Ken, thank you so much for your generous time on Three Banks this morning. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. It is always good to be in London, and particularly to visit with Lord Desai. Megden Desai of the London School of Economics is... Uh, been a prolific thinker and writer on the changes, and there's none more than the uncertainty of 2007. His book, Hubris, was my book of the year last year, uh, 2015. It is a spectacular one volume. You've got a new book, uh, Lord Desai, coming out on the resumption of history. I want to go to your classic book, Marxist Revenge, on what you call the short century. 
Will Mr. Trump bring us the long four years? I think so. I think so. You know, it is. Uh, he arrives with a economy in good shape, but with plenty of reserve power to grow. And he, not being a professional politician, doesn't know the constraints he should he should follow. And so he will be a fiscally adventurous person. When you hear people within the Bloomberg world talk about the present uncertainty, how do you translate that to your entire study of uncertainty and hubris? When we say uncertainty to our listeners, what does that really mean? Well, to me, the real crucial change will be we are in the middle of a long downward cycle, long downward Kondratiev cycle. Can he reverse it? Can he stop it and reverse it? Can he actually make a change so that the usual thing about secular stagnation goes away and he triggers, not only in America but elsewhere, a, uh, a growth revolution? Now, you know, I, I don't put it past him to be able to do that. I think just because, you know, he is not a professional person doesn't mean he is not a very competent person. I think he could do it. Mm-hmm. Lord Desai with us here in London. He's the chairman of the Board of Advisors of the Official Monetary and Financial Institutions Forum here in London. Let me ask you how you begin to reckon with what this new century might look like without America perhaps in the leadership role it's been in the past. Do you worry about the end of Pax Americana or a reduced American exceptionalism, reduced sense of American exceptionalism? Well, I think that the real danger is that uh, Donald Trump is not ready for post-Pax Americana. And he is trying to get back at the top of the league. Now, this exactly about a century ago, more or less, maybe 120 years ago, England was threatened by the rise of Germany and America. And, you know, that that is a very much a, a repeating episode here. Now, that unfortunately ended sadly in the First World War. And we don't really want that to happen here. But America is viewing China as the number two kid trying to get up past them. And Trump feels he has to stop, partly because of American pride, partly because he feels he can get some manufacturing jobs back. Now, I think getting manufacturing jobs back is a tricky thing, not necessarily beneficial. But but to get America to the top again, I hope it's only economically, not militarily. If it's militarily, it will be a big gamble. When you look back at history, what what is the analog you're looking toward? Are you looking to the 20s and and 30s? Is is there another period that gives you more renaissance? Go back a century. Go back a century. And 2017 was the year in which America entered First World War. America entered Europe. America entered global, uh, global stakes. And 2017 was the year of the October Revolution. Right? And now at the end of the century, the October Revolution lost out. And America emerged as a top dog. Okay? Now, after 25 years, will America be able to sustain You're one of our great students of history. I've had the honor of speaking to you about India, the day of the Bombay bombings. You and I went through Brexit together. We've done things for years. Lord Desai, very simply here, can you see it coming? Did they see in 1914 or 13 what was going to happen? We can all agree in 38 or 39, we didn't see it coming. Can we see it coming again? I definitely put a non-negligible probability on a serious armed conflict between China and 
U.S., with India on the side of U.S. Within India, just in the time we have left, what is your prescription for Mr. Modi to right the financial ship of India after this monetization uproar? I think he took a risk and he survived. He now has to go after bigger structural reforms like the labor market. Mm-hmm. You know, if he can, if he can go on being bold and taking risks, he's going to get reelected in 2019. You know, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think now he has time to assert himself, take risks, mm-hmm. and go forward uh, and shape the Indian economy. I want to congratulate you on your chairmanship of OMFIF. Uh, you know, you hear me, folks, talk about foreign affairs of the Council on Foreign Relations, Ambassador Haas's organization. The bulletin of the OMFIF is fabulous. It is brutal short reads by professionals linking in economics to international relations. It's a joy to see Phyllis Papadavid here on African economics, to see Lord Desai write on his India, and Stephen Hankey of Johns Hopkins writing on the challenges of dynamics with Venezuela and the currency uh, markets. Professor Desai is emeritus at the London School of Economics. and Tom Keene in London, and I wanted to finish our, our sojourn here of the week with someone who can synthesize together so much of what's going on and provide a framework not of certitude but of options as we move forward. The World Economic Forum meetings is a distraction, but the serious business of, uh, of inaugurating a new president, and this would be Robert Sinch of Amherst Pierpont. Bob, you had the call of the autumn. In October, you nailed the end of the descent in Sterling. We've seen a recovery, but now a rollover, and with it, an ebbing of the certitude of Trump reflation. How is all this going to play out? Well, I think that, you know, uh, the, the U.K. authorities have, have uh, again, raised the specter of a, of a harder Brexit, and I think that's probably what's reverberated uh, through Sterling. Um, on a trade-weighted basis, sterling is still up from from the lows, uh, but obviously it's been a, a much stronger dollar that it's been uh, battling against also. You know, I think that uh, my view has been for a while that what we've seen in the markets is not so much um, expectations about new policy under a Trump administration, but it's really the reality of the economic environment in the latter part of 2016. Is looking this morning at uh, the economic surprise index uh, globally, and it's at its highest level since 2010. So, I think what the markets have been reacting to is just a, a, a much stronger global momentum into the latter part of last year, and I think they've been responding to reality rather than necessarily expectations about what comes next. Bob, help us with uh, with the emerging markets. Uh, we've been watching Turkish lira all week. For the first couple of days as we watched it, we were kind of unsure of what was happening there. Here on a Friday at the end of the week, do we have a clearer sense of what's going on and, and how effective the, the country's central bank might be in uh, stopping what we've been seeing? You know, I think it's interesting that um, central banks, particularly in emerging and smaller economies these days, are less aggressive at actually trying to defend their currencies. And I think that has to do with the environment being one of of disinflation, low inflation, rather than high inflation. You know, when I was a a much younger man and inflationary pressures were much higher around the world, 
a weakening currency was really a problem because it exacerbated uh, the underlying concern, which was was uh, very high inflation, and so central banks had to really step in uh, to defend their currencies. In a world of low inflation, and, and in many cases uh, over the last few years, inflation that was below target and of concern that it was that it was too low. Um, having a weaker currency and having prices pick up a little bit is not the worst thing in the world. And so I think what we're seeing is central banks will monitor and make sure that conditions don't become disorderly, and, and there's a risk that that's happened, um, but really not spending a lot of resources in trying to defend um, the currency at a time when markets okay. are in disarray. This has been a theme of our visit to London, that Mexico is a good economy affected by a zillion cubic potential feet of concrete stretch from the Gulf of Mexico to the Pacific Ocean. Are you telling me, Bob Sinch, that Mexico's the mother of all longs, the mother of all buys? I, I, I don't think we're there yet, although I would note that, um, you know, during 2015, the Mexican Central Bank tried to defend the currency. They spent about $20 billion trying to prop up the peso. Uh, in 2016, reserves were flat. They were actually up a couple billion dollars. And so they've just stepped away and let the market take hold. We often see currencies overshoot. I think we're, we're heading toward an overshoot in the Mexican peso. I still think, though, there's so much uncertainty about policy going forward that it would be a very brave person who would come in and take on a position right now. But certainly, given the speed of the decline, um, and the, 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 the solid nature of some of the underlying fundamentals in Mexico, at some point I think you do want to own the peso. Um, I don't think we're quite there yet. Still too much uncertainty. But this is not as though the currency has been mm -hmm. propped up and it still has a lot to go to the downside. Bob, I, I'll put a question to you that I put to Jordan Rochester. It's funny, politics is driving so much of Forex right now, it seems. But uh, what are you listening for here uh, out of the U.K.? What are you listening for when uh, Theresa May speaks on Tuesday? Well, uh, you know, I've been of the view that, that economics will dominate this, and the U.K. and the E.U. are very large trading partners. Um, so I've kind of turned uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt on, uh, on, it, on its head, his, his uh, you know, speak softly and carry a big stick. I think we'll hear a lot of noise, but when push comes to shove, there'll be a lot more agreement um, that the U.K. and the E.U. want to stay very strong trading partners. And I think that... that uh, Really, I'm not so much so sure there's much that she can say at this point. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's really a matter of what the EU authorities are willing to accept as yeah. we go forward. But it, certainly some some uh, some indication that there's a willing to willingness to negotiate right. um, as we go forward. But I think immigration remains the big issue, and I don't think you'll see any uh, any compromise yeah. there. Bob, since to link this into the bond market, into the price we pay for the things that we do, we've had a Trump reflation. Is the great distortion over? You know, I think that, that uh, the great distortion in terms of concerns of deflationary fears and disinflationary pressures um, is over. Um, the fundamentals are pointing us in that direction. Um, and I think we're also at the end of, uh, of quantitative easing around the world. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's been the, uh, the trend, and I think 2016, uh, 2016 will mark the real end of aggressive uh, QE, and mm -hmm. we'll be seeing <clears throat> moderation in that effort as we go through, and that will bring fixed income yeah. markets in particular back towards equilibrium. Bob Sinch, thank you for the Friday wrap-up. Mr. Sinch is with Amherst Pierpont. Again, a terrific call in October on sterling uh, stability. Mm -hmm.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.